So we spent this season of Lent learning to pray the Psalms of Lament. And we've called this series of sermons Songs of Sorrow and Hope because that's what these psalms are. They give voice to our deepest sorrows while holding them fast in the hands of hope. This morning we come to the conclusion of our series with what may be the most profound of all the psalms of lament in the whole of the Bible, and that's Psalm 22. You're going to want to turn there with me. It's on page 457 of the Red Bibles. Page 457. So Psalm 22, is, it's just unusual. And it's unusual because it has two very different halves, and it works on two distinct levels. Let me explain what I mean. The first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 21, is straight up lament. It is a desperate cry for help. At verse 22, however, the tone changes pretty much completely. And we move from lament into praise. Well, while laments often contain a mixture of complaint and praise, Psalm 22 is different in how profoundly that shift is made. It almost feels as if two different songs have been strung together. Psalm 22 also operates on two distinct levels. The first is that of the original author. The psalm appears to recount a truly awful episode in the life of David. It's a picture of oppression, torture, and looming death. Now, if this is David, it's hard to know what situation he's describing because it doesn't match anything that we know of his life from Scripture. Nonetheless, the excruciating detail and the genuine suffering of the psalm, they appear to indicate that he experienced something like what he describes. So that's the first level, the personal experience of David. But the psalm also operates at a second level, and it's one that we might call the prophetic level. And that's because this is the psalm that Jesus has on his lips as he hangs from the cross on Good Friday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he cries in the moments just before his death. And when you read the psalm with this in mind, you realize just how much it seems to speak about death by crucifixion. It's as if it were written for Jesus all along. So this morning we're going to look at these, at these two different levels We're going to look at these two different levels, the the personal and the prophetic, as we work through those two separate halves of this psalm. Beginning at the personal level, we'll spend some time considering what more we can learn about lament by how David prays. We'll then turn to the prophetic level, considering it as the prayer of Jesus and asking what this means for us as his followers. So David's prayer begins with the kind of cry that by now should be familiar to us from these psalms of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. David's prayers have been met by silence, and he fears that God has abandoned him. And that's where he begins his prayer. He begins his prayer right where he is, restless, fearful, and in pain. But he quickly shifts his focus in verse 3. 
Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Is this an effort to spur God to action by reminding them of the past? Or is this an attempt by David to calm himself by remembering who God is? Well, it's not clear. Perhaps perhaps it's both. But David's attention swings back onto himself in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David has been mocked for his faith, and he feels the sting of humiliation. It's hard to focus on God's goodness when all you hear are taunts and insults. But David is desperate. So in verse 9, he turns his attention back to the goodness of God. Yet you, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Not only was God good to Israel in the past, he has been with David since he was born. David knows this, and he's trying to maintain his trust, but it's hard. The psalm continues, and over the next 10 verses, David describes his ordeal in greater detail. He is encircled by violence, calling his enemies dogs and bulls. He can't see over them or beyond them. He's near to death, and so he cries out in verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. It is an excruciating sequence. And there's this manic quality to David's prayer through the first 21 verses. He he bounces back and forth from himself and his circumstances to God and his character, sliding into despair, then clamoring back toward hope. We've We've said it several times in this series of sermons already, but it's worth repeating. These psalms of lament, they are not extemporaneous ramblings jotted down in a rush. They are carefully crafted poems. So that perplexing reference, you may have noticed it right at the beginning of the psalm, to to the doe of the dawn, it's probably the name of the melody that this was sung to. This psalm, it's not merely a window into David's soul. It's a model of prayer, and it's a piece of instruction. So what can we learn from a prayer like this? Well, one of the things I think we can learn is the difference between rumination and lamentation. There's two good four-syllable words for you on a Sunday morning. The difference between rumination and lamentation. So several times a week, I, uh, I ride my bike past NC State's vast veterinary school campus. And my favorite part of the ride is when I pass the Ruminant Animal Research Station on Reedy Creek Road. It's this rural oasis that is just delightfully out of place in suburban Raleigh. 
Now, as you probably know, a ruminant animal it's any, is any animal with multiple stomachs or a multi-chambered stomach. It's an animal that chews and digests its food more than once. So a cow will eat grass in the morning and chew its cud, its regurgitated breakfast, in the afternoon so that lunch is basically breakfast all over again. That's the only way it can digest its food. Now this, I can tell by your faces, this is really gross. And I'm not going to go into any further details because I don't want you to get queasy. Well, as gross as ruminating is to us on a physical level, it's equally repulsive on a spiritual and emotional level. And yet, it is something that many of us do. So to ruminate on something on a spiritual or on a, an emotional level is to hold it within, to turn it over and over in your head, examining it from countless angles. So we do this with all kinds of things. We do this when we have conflict with a friend, replaying conversations in our heads and imagining countless subsequent encounters or arguments. We do this when we're stressed by something. We try to work the problem, but as we do, we slip into fixating on it and worrying about it and obsessing about it. We do this when we've been hurt by someone, nursing the wound by contemplating our revenge or by collecting all of our resentments into a growing pile. Now, this is different from the kind of careful reflection needed to navigate challenging circumstances. So to ruminate is to chew on something over and over again, refusing to release it. What this does is it toys with our anxieties by feeding on our lack of control. And ultimately, it clouds our judgment. Rumination, in the sense that I'm talking about, it means savoring the bile of your own mental and emotional vomit. Now, there's a takeaway line for you on a Sunday morning. Lamentation, by contrast, it means taking your sorrow, your grief, your anger, your despair, and placing them into God's hands giving them to him in recognition that only he can ultimately resolve these things and with the expectation that he will. Lamentation, it's an admission of the limits of our power, and it's a declaration of our absolute dependence on God. So it's, it's an act of trust hidden within a cry of anguish. Lamentation is a form of prayer, while rumination is a kind of self-consoling. Only lamentation leads to right perspective and ultimately to godly action. In Psalm 22, David invites us, I think, into his own battle between rumination and lamentation. He's in agony. He's in agony, but instead of just tamping it down, stewing in it, and trying to deal with it himself, he pours it out to God. 
And he goes back and forth between himself and God, explaining how he feels and what he's experiencing, then turning to say what he knows to be true of the God of Israel. David refuses to get sucked into the pit of rumination because he has learned to lament. But here's what can be so frustrating. Sometimes we think that we are lamenting when what we're doing is actually ruminating. To lament is to address God directly with your sorrow or your anger or your fear. To lament is to ask God to act on your behalf. To lament is to place the burden of responsibility back on God when you are constantly tempted to keep it for yourself or to dump it on other people. But all too often what happens when we try to lament is that we sit down to pray and then we ruminate while God stands quietly by our side waiting to be brought into the conversation. So what do we do? Now for many of us, ruminating like this, it's so natural, it's like digestion. We do it without thinking. And in order to learn to lament, we need an intervention. So I want to encourage you to try two things if this is something that you wrestle with. First, start praying out loud. Start praying out loud. So when we pray, many of us begin by trying to direct our thoughts toward God instead of speaking directly to Him. It's silent, it's all in our head, and when we do this, it's incredibly easy to slip out of prayer into mental processing or ruminating on a problem. And one way to break this pattern is to start praying out loud. Now, if you're not used to this, this is hard, it can feel weird, you're going to want to find your own space because you probably don't want your family to hear. It's also revolutionary. It focuses the mind it filters out distraction. It keeps you praying rather than endlessly processing. So first, start praying out loud. Here's the second one. Try writing down your prayers. Try writing down your prayers. So sometimes, sometimes we think that the measure of a good prayer is how much material we cover. The more people we name, the more ailments we bring before God, the greater our effectiveness. Well, what if that's not actually true? What if it's more important to pray one thing clearly than a lot of things quickly? When you are overcome with sorrow or fear or pain, it's okay to take time writing down your prayer, even turning it into poetry or song. The care that we take in the act of writing, it draws us deeper into, into the truth of our situation and into the presence of God. It clarifies what we feel and what we believe, and it focuses our attention in a way that allows us to escape that cesspit of endless rumination. All right, no more cattle imagery. We need to turn our attention back to the psalm because something happens that is profound at the end of verse 21. David is on the edge of death. He's surrounded by his enemies. But then in verse 22, he is suddenly praising God surrounded by his people. 
And the rest of the psalm is a song of praise to the God who saves his people from death. So how, how does this work, these two halves of the psalm? And it's here that we need to consider the second level of meaning found in this psalm. We need to shift from David's personal story to, to the prophetic significance of this psalm that Jesus prays from the cross. So our gospel reading from Mark 15, it recounts Jesus' final moments. As he hangs from the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, and though he only repeats the first line, I am convinced that Jesus is inviting us to reread the entire psalm as if it were his own. So the gospel writers actually take him up on this invitation. As they narrate Jesus' final moments, each of them refer to this psalm directly or indirectly. So Jesus' thirst, recorded in all four of the gospels, recalls the thirst of verse 15. The taunting of Jesus by the Roman soldiers reminds Matthew of the taunting of verses 6 through 8, so much so that he quotes verse 8 in his description of the soldiers. John tells us that the soldiers gambled over Jesus' clothes, just like the oppressors in verse 18. This isn't just David's prayer. It's Jesus' prayer. And by taking it on his lips, he invites us to see how the two halves of this song make sense together. And we don't know what happens between verse 21 and verse 22, but it's something profound. The psalm shifts from the darkness of total desperation to the bright light of praise for redemption. I don't know what happened to David that led him to write the psalm in this way, but I do know what happened to Jesus. Verses 1 to 21, they seem to be Jesus' prayer during those brutal hours leading up to his death. They capture the misery of the Garden of Gethsemane, the humiliation of his trial, and the agony of the cross itself. Verses 22 to 31, well, they only make sense as Jesus' prayer on Easter Day. What happens in that space between is his resurrection from the dead. And that, I think, is why the psalm explodes with praise. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The father heard the agony of the son. And though it was the Father's will for him to die, he didn't abandon him to the grave. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Jesus conquered death. And the afflicted, us, we will conquer death with him and praise him forever. An eternal feast follows the joy of redemption in the everlasting, all-encompassing reign of God. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. In just a few verses, we have moved from the awful suffering of a single man to the joy-filled worship of every tribe and nation. It is only through Jesus 
that this can take place. And then there's verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. The lament of verses 1 to 21, it's a cry to be spared from death. That prayer is not answered in Jesus' case. Instead, the answer comes on the other side of death, where there's new life given, life that is free from suffering and pain. Death couldn't ultimately come between God and His Son, and it will not come between God and His people. Not even death can stand in the way of our salvation. So the psalm begins in agony, but it ends in triumph. It begins on Good Friday, and it ends on Easter. It finally makes sense when we see that it was written for Jesus. But, you know, there is one more level at which we must read this psalm. And that's the level of our own experience. Because this psalm, it was written for us as well. The other day I was, I was praying my way slowly through this psalm, trying to make it my own prayer of lament. And, and as I prayed, the description of suffering or sorrow it became less and less my own, and it became more and more that of Jesus. It was as if his lament was being superimposed over my own until his far greater suffering overshadowed mine completely. And then at verse 22, his praise broke through on the other side. His suffering faded in the triumph of resurrection. And I found my sorrow set in a new context, which was hope. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. That's what we're told in verse 24. He has not hidden his face from him. Instead, do you know what he did? Jesus came down and he experienced affliction himself. He joined his experience to ours so that we might, by faith, join ours to his and so be with him in the triumph of resurrection life. This God that, that we come to with our lament, he understands our suffering because he has suffered too, both with us and for us. And by his suffering, he bought our redemption. Because of this, we know that one day suffering and sorrow will end. Psalm 22 ends with this wonderful final affirmation, he has done it. It's a use of the past tense that, that seems to say, I know without a doubt that these things will take place so much so that I can speak of them as already accomplished. He has done it sounds an awful lot like the words Jesus uttered as he gave up his life on the cross it is finished. As we pray this psalm 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we make the shift from verse 21 to verse 22 because he went down to death and conquered the grave. It is in him and only in him that we can move from lament 
into praise. Jesus took our suffering and our sorrow and our sin and he buried them. Now we know that these things remain. These things remain a part of our lives and that's why we lament. But we live in the bright light of his resurrection and because of that, we can pray with hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you shared our sorrow. You shared our suffering. You took on our sin and you buried these in the grave. And then you rose in triumph to new life. And you stand now, reigning over all things, inviting us to bring our suffer, suffering, sorrow, and sin to you. Uh, to lament these things and to turn them into a song of hope. Hope in our redemption. Hope in your resurrection. Hope in life eternal. Lord Jesus, would you teach us, continue to teach us to lament to sing these songs of sorrow and hope with the certain trust in your ultimate victory. Amen.